Hello and welcome to the Whiskey Rebels. Uh, I'm Josh Evans, and this time we've got something a little bit different for you. Uh, we recently recorded a sort of collaborative episode with Greg Pulcher of Frida Brew. It's a fantastic podcast that's in a way kind of complementary to our own. Uh, you know, while we look at the history of alcohol regulation, uh, Greg sort of looks at the present. Uh, we had a really great conversation with him, and I hope y'all are going to enjoy it. Uh, so here it is. Okay, uh, this is uh, Greg Pulsher here at the Free to Brew Show, and uh, I think we are both doing sort of our own little introductories at the beginning of this, but let's just get right into this. Um, I want to introduce right off the bat uh, the Whiskey Rebels podcast, and that's going to be host or that's hosted by Josh Evans, Jonathan Nelson, and Drew. Brackbill and uh, guys, thanks for coming on the show, and I guess uh, vice versa, vice versa on that too. Yeah, thanks so much for having us, and uh, thanks for coming on our show too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, we appreciate the uh, the publicity. <laughs> oh, definitely. Uh, I've loved your guys's podcast. Uh, it's been on every time you guys come out with one, uh, pretty much bi-weekly. Uh, I've been uh, listening in and loving the information. Really, it's been a lot of things that I didn't know, uh, particularly the absinthe episode that was sort of, in, or it was enlightening and uh, really enjoyed the uh, history as well uh, behind, behind a lot of different cult or, or the cultures out there that you've uh, introduced. And, uh, but uh, guys, right off the bat, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? And I really want to find out how you guys came up with this idea for the show and how you guys put it all together. Yeah. Um, well, so we've uh, we we all went to the same college together. We were uh, all friends. Well, I, I was close friends with Josh, and uh, I was close friends with John in college. And Josh, <laughs> we went to the same college, but didn't meet each other until after we graduated and we're living in uh, DC together. So we may have been interning when we met, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh, so we all knew each other um, from the same college and had sort of the similar libertarian-leaning political sort of ideas about politics and, and uh, about regulations. And we wanted to do a podcast together. Um, and we kind of figured, what can we talk about where we can talk about how bad regulation is <laughs> and like how many bad, dumb regulations there are on this given issue. And the thing that sprung to my mind was alcohol. Um, and the, the Whiskey Rebels name just kind of came out of the the thought that I had about doing an alcohol podcast, and I thought, what well, would be a cool name for a podcast about alcohol regulation? And then I thought, Whiskey Rebellion, huh? <laughs> so we had originally called ourselves the Whiskey Rebellion, but we found out after we actually after we recorded our first episode that there's another podcast by that name that has like sixty some episodes. It's, it's <laughs> totally unrelated. Oh, and it's infuriating because like they don't even like talk about alcohol are you serious so they like they are wasting that name yeah, they're yeah. Primarily ah. like a history podcast. Yeah, i guess exactly. the so, issue is uh happening with podcasts like it is in the beer industry right now all the good names are taken and now it's just yeah. uh, this fight for figuring out the best pun out there really <laughs> exactly yeah so we, we figured we would just change it to whiskey rebels because we wanted to have whiskey in the name um and I guess some some reference to the Whiskey Rebellion. Well, you had your flagship show as the uh, Whiskey Rebellion, so that was good. I mean, that that right there. Yeah, our pilot episode was that was, really we just kind of wanted to talk about how bad Alexander Hamilton is <laughs> and how he's so misperceived <laughs> these days because of the I will admit excellent work of Lin Manuel Miranda. 
uh, who's excellent musically, excellent. not so excellent historically. Well, yeah, touche. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's mostly Ron Chernow's fault, <laughs> writing such a hagiography of, of Hamilton. But uh, we're not gigantic fans of Al Ham, so we kind of wanted to talk about how he's actually sort of was, was at fault for this rebellion that, that started, and we wanted to talk about how, because all down through history, alcohol has had such a profound impact on people's lives, whether they're drinking it recreationally or whether it's a medium of exchange for these people. And the, the Whiskey Rebellion came out of the fact that people depended on whiskey for their livelihood because it was their currency, and it was easier to transport than the grains that it was made out of that they grew. So farmers, this was their money. And government, a government, a large, for the time, centralized government, took away from them what they considered was their basic right, and they rose up because they had been, uh, they, had, they had had that right taken away from them. Well, and what's interesting so with that, I mean, that's the exact same thing that's sort of happening right now in, like, Venezuela, uh, I mean, like they've sort of had their ability for to make transactions feasible and efficiently taken away from them because of the onerous inflation this that's just been skyrocketing down there. But all other forms of currency, uh, including the dollar, even Bitcoin, are technically illegal in the state there. So, I mean, we yeah. see this happening a lot in, over numerous countries, over numerous time periods out there. I mean, is there is there something that from what you guys have like studied up on this, and uh, I, I guess um, your hatred for Alexander Hamilton, uh, you see as like some learning opportunities that we can pull away from some of this history. Well, I, I don't know. I wouldn't say we have, we have a hatred for Alexander. <laughs> well, it, 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 I, it, or it's come across a quite a bit. Figure, so, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I have. Maybe I have a little animus towards <laughs> Hamilton, but uh, <laughs> a little bit more than us, maybe. Yeah, probably. But um, no, I think that that's a very apt comparison, actually. And then I didn't think about it in terms of what's happening in, in Venezuela. But uh, I don't know, John. You you're an economist, sort of. Can you talk about the the issues that arise when there's no legal available medium of exchange? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean that's definitely a problem, and I think. Greg, you're right, like Venezuela is kind of a crazy, crazy example of that and something that we probably didn't expect to see in the 21st century. Yeah. Um, I think kind of the lessons of the Cold War and the lessons of the Soviets were like, oh, that's not going to happen again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it happened again. Um, and, I, yeah, I think that's definitely interesting. And, and we also see that with alcohol policy where we see the lessons of uh, the prohibition in, in the early 20th century and we have the same problems with drug prohibition and other kinds of prohibition uh, today. And then the, thing, the same exact issues of crime and, and uh, cartels and those kinds of things that were the exact reason that the prohibition came to an end. We see that with the drug war and the drug prohibition too. So I, just, I think one of the, the interesting things that we've kind of uh, explored with our podcast too is we see a lot of cycles of history and we see a lot of mm -hmm. things that we can kind of, well, this thing happened 200 years ago, but how we can apply that today because it's basically the same thing yeah. um, See, happening again. There's um, nothing new under the sun. Right. <laughs> and, and, and really what's great about your show is you you guys do make a very conceited and great, or, great or an effort uh, to keep it just on the history, like keep it just on the time period, that subject that you're talking about, and not go 
very far. I mean, when I listen to them, I do hear like a lot of parallels uh, with some of the policies we're seeing today, like you just mentioned, uh, with drug pol or, or, or the policy of prohibition, uh, these blue laws and whatnot, or parallels in other or, or I guess industries too, or in other countries. Uh, but you guys do make a great effort to stay on topic. And I really respect that because that does allow the listener then to start thinking about other things that this can take place in, uh, but get such a wonderful lesson from you guys. But I, I, I got to imagine that's fairly difficult on your end uh, to try to stay on point and not get too far into other topics that relate so well to what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, that's mostly Josh's editing work because when we're recording oh. <laughs> uh, there is a lot of non-sequitur. And, and uh, yeah, we, we, we script our podcast out and we, we research it pretty pretty thoroughly beforehand. Um, well, I don't know, fairly thoroughly. It's not like it's, it's not a dissertation, but we... Uh, yeah, but that's we what keeps it fun. We try to stay on topic, but often we'll... We also want to relate our podcast to what's happening in, in reality, so we do try to have some like moments where we talk about like, oh, how does the struggles of the Whiskey Rebellion relate to like current policy surrounding drug prohibition and stuff like that. But like, well, I yeah. think to, that, that was a lot of our original intention, but as the podcast has gone on, I think we've drifted away from that a little bit. And I think that's just in part because there's really a lot to unpack just in the sort of historical yeah. aspect. I mean, and multifaceted issues and you know there's a, there's definitely like a lot of applications on anything but I think to in order to be able to like accurately make the modern applications we really need to sort of build out what happened back then and uh, you know part of that's just time like I don't think you know, as, as much as we appreciate your praise I don't know that there's many people who want to listen to you know two hours of historical <laughs> and modern analysis uh, every couple of weeks from us yeah and at the start, we weren't sure whether we wanted to do a history podcast or a politics podcast or a political history podcast. And we ended up deciding that, I think, Josh, I think you're right, that we have fallen much harder on the history side lately. But I, And I personally, I'm so just jaded by politics lately. I'm, like, I'm much more interested in talking about what did happen than like what is happening. At a certain point with what's going on right now in politics, I mean, even in a lot of these beer laws and alcohol laws that are getting uh, sort of going backwards in a couple of states, but predominantly it's going forward and forward freedom and liberty's sake. But there are some head scratchers out there, but even in just national politics, you really, a comedian couldn't write this stuff. I mean, it, it, it's sort yeah. of like the commentary on it, no matter what you do is just not going to, it doesn't pale in comparison to what's actually happening in real life. And I, I think that's yeah. at, at this point, it's really difficult for commentators and for any type of comedian out there to try to do anything within the realm of politics. Uh, but uh, I mean, as far as with this show though, what are, I guess, what are some of the points that you guys have found most profound or most relevant uh, to what's going on in alcohol laws today from what you've uncovered doing your show? I mean, I personally, I, I think that the most relevant thing, because this still happens today, is how how often you would see that the laws would be made by politicians who were in the pay of certain industries. So absinthe, one of the main reasons absinthe was banned in France was because of lobbying.
lobbying by the wine industry because absinthe was competing with the French sort of wine producers, and they had, you know, managed to drum up the, this conception among the populace that absinthe was poisoning people's brains and get it banned. Um, and you still see that kind of thing today. I think that the regulatory capture element is still very, very much alive and well because it's just human nature. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that stuck out most to me. I don't know about you guys. I think for me there's this common thread of sort of a misguided paternalism. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you see in, in, in Prohibition and in a lot of other attempts to like limit or restrict alcohol, there was this attempt to address a societal problem, which, you know, to be fair, were like actual societal problems. Like during the Prohibition area, like drinking was a huge problem. I mean, far beyond like what it is in like modern America. So it was like a legitimate problem, but this kind of heavily controlled top-down approach just doesn't work, but we still see the same thing happening today. And we still see it, you know, to a lesser extent in controlling alcohol access. You know, we see it in the war on drugs. We see, we even see it on tobacco policy. Um, you know, there's like, the thing is, e-cigs, while they are certainly not good for you, they are far, far less harmful than cigarettes. But there's this mindset among, among many regulators that it's basically you have to quit or nothing. Um, and so there's, they're kind of basically sabotaging this yeah. better alternative. It was kind of in the way, and I, I think I brought this up in the, in the Prohibition episode that we did, but um, there was a common thing of people drinking just like, like industrial alcohol or something oh, like that. Yeah. Um, and so Government, the government, like agents, were like poisoning that yeah. industrial alcohol to yeah. people from drinking it. Government uh, killed people to prove a point that liquor kills. But it's like, no, it's, it, it's on at this point, your liquor literally was what killed people. It, it was exactly. Uh, I mean, from my understanding of that time period as well, uh, I, I think there was problems within a lot of these melting pots of cultures because the saloons were really. Uh, I guess they were the community center, community center, or, or these, or these centers for a lot of people out there, a lot of immigrants, and there was a lot of fear involved in that too by, uh, by, by others that saw that they were a threat to their way of life, and you could, I'm sure there was a considerable amount of alcohol consumption, and you've discussed this on your show as well, but there's debate as far as was that because. Uh, the water was just so bad that you would live longer if you drank alcohol or if that was just part of the culture in general. And uh, But then when you get the government involved and you force people to be virtuous, that's an, forcing people to be your set of, your set of morals, uh, you, that's when you see this unintended backlash and consequences uh, that from what I looked at, I thought it was far worse uh, than having the saloons, having this type of culture that potentially you can help progress people out of through uh, different types of lifestyles. But uh, from uh, what I saw with getting the government involved, you saw people that wanted to force their morality on others, were willing to kill them to do that and get the government and a lot of other bad players involved. Like uh, there's also a thought that the Ku Klux Klan was actually got its sort of second coming really during that time period because prohibitionists would join up forces 
with the Ku Klux Klan. Granted, they didn't agree entirely with what they were doing, but they thought that, hey, this is an evil we got to get rid of. Um, ends justify the means. Let's give some money to these guys and let them do the policing out there. So you see a whole other sect going on when you get the government involved. Yeah, that's definitely something you see in a lot of different kind of aspects of regulatory policy is that regulators and, just, and legislators and any, just anybody who makes public policy tend to be really, really bad at foreseeing, uh, like, unintended consequences. Um, so in, so like, in and of itself, uh, unintended, they'll yeah. Do, they'll do the cost-benefit analysis, but, like, they're just really, really bad at, like, figuring out how, like, rational humans are actually going to respond to the incentives they create and the things that they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just kind of crazy, some of the examples you see, and, the, and especially you see them within alcohol policy. It's just crazy. And I think part of that, not to get too too deeply into like Mises or anything or hype, but like Oh, please go for it. I, I love when someone <laughs> brings up Mises on the on, on on this show, so please go for it. Only thing better is if you would have said Rothbard, really. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think part of the reason why government is so bad at predicting unforeseen consequences is because they're not operating off of kind of knowledge that a market system provides. Mm-hmm. They're not operating off of genuine concrete knowledge about people's preferences and desires. They're operating off of assumptions. Maybe those assumptions are based in like surveys that they've done or in evidence that they've anecdotal evidence or case study type evidence that they've collected from the public and, and in the best case scenario when a government makes a policy, I think that's the case. But mostly I think that government decisions are based off of prejudices. Like you mentioned the, the Ku Klux Klan, and we talked about this in our Prohibition episode, but it's about who can I make an alliance with, how can I get reelected, and how will the decisions that I've made help my political campaigns in the future and the constituencies that I care about. Mm-hmm. So and I think it's pretty rare that governments actually even look at the limited evidence that they have that's available to them uh, when they make policies. And, and uh, I mean, that's the legislation side. And like on the regulatory side, it's a little bit different because regulators aren't trying to be Re-elected, but their incentives are to make lots of regulations and to make quote-unquote like beneficial regulations. And in order to make a beneficial regulation, it has to do something big. Yeah. And if it's doing something big, it's probably messing with people's lives, and that's not necessarily always going to get accounted for um, when they're doing their analysis or when they're trying to figure out what to do. It can be very problematic. And, and there's a, there's a sort of um, devil's advocate argument to be made that maybe the government doesn't always recognize like the follow-on effects of the policies that it, that it makes. Like, say, take Prohibition, for example. Like, sure, maybe it led to the rise of uh, the, Ku Klux, the Ku Klux Klan, the second rise of the Ku Klux, Ku Klux Klan. That's a tough, tough one to spit out there, <laughs> uh, the KKK. And maybe it did lead to the rise of very, like, strong organized crime uh, elements in the United States. And maybe it did lead to the, the poisoning of people. But people, some people would say, I know people that would say, mm-hmm the corresponding reduction in the amount of alcohol consumed and the public health benefit gained from that was worth it. And I think whether you think, whether that utilitarian argument, A, whether it's based on facts, I mean, I think that's the question, but B, whether you're persuaded by that or not comes down to how you view uh, the moral role of government in mm-hmm. society. Does, even if it's going to benefit people a little bit, is it something government should be doing is it within the proper role of government? And I very strongly believe no, <laughs> uh, because if your government is not prescribed by 
strong laws about what its powers are and are not, whether the things that it's doing benefit people or not. Like, if it's doing something that it cannot do by 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 the rules it is bound itself by, then it shouldn't do that thing. And that's where you know, oh yeah, the biggest overreaches in our history have come from when government ignored the the rules which bound it to do things that it thought would be good for people. And I think and, that really sums up a lot of what our alcohol policy is today in states is it's is it 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 really no one ever asks that question anymore of like to what like what what is the purpose of this bill what is the purpose of this regulation why are we doing this why do we have an abc why do we have certain laws on drinking age on uh when you can drink on whatever it is no one asks why are we doing this and why do we want to make criminals out of consenting adults uh, that otherwise would not be hurting anybody else when we have laws against hurting other uh, other other people or interfering with other people's lives uh, when it's not wanted. So it's it's just sort of, it seems a lot of times of what I have people on the show is when it really gets down to it, it's busybodies trying to justify their job. Uh, And that's what I see with a lot of ABC stores. I mean, with the three-tiered system of distribution, uh, and with that, like I, there's a lot of issues in the alcohol world, and whether you're doing wine or spirits or beer, uh, there's some shared, but there's also some unique issues at play too. And from doing my show and talking to a lot of brewers and people out there, and seeing the market as it is. Uh, the two top ones that come to mind for me that if I could do away or manipulate or change or by manipulate, I mean, get rid of, uh, but get rid of uh, one thing about our system today, um, it would have to be one of two things. And it's more fo- it's focused on beer. And that's the mandated use of the three tiered system, uh, forcing uh, brewers to deal with wholesalers before they can ever get to a consumer or retailer and also franchise termination laws where you basically give all the power to this middleman third party and should one person in the contract decide the contract's not being followed they're getting that bad deal out out of this it's basically impossible and you'll have to go out of business just to get out of your contract uh, I, I, I'm really interested to hear from what you guys have looked at in the realm of alcohol. Uh, what are, for each of you, what are a key issue that you think would be pivotal in changing uh, to free up our system? Um, I think for me, I, the three-tier system is definitely one that's pretty, pretty crazy. It's just amazing to me that you have to go through this whole bureaucratic structure that there's a whole entity or a corporation or whoever's in charge of the wholesaling and you have to go through them in order to kind of give you like be able to sell your beer to anyone. Um, and like the amount of just inefficiencies and like rent seeking and collection that can happen in that system is just insane to me. Um, and I don't know if you look at the, if you look at some of the history behind it, um, we talk about like the bootleggers and Baptists a lot um, about how there's interest that, come together where one group thinks that alcohol is bad, so they want to do something about it. You have another group that if the government does something about it, they benefit from it. But it seems like in some of these situations, like the Baptists have disappeared. Like no one, 
no one is actually even advocating for these from a moral standpoint anymore. It's just that the wholesalers or uh, big beer. Well, you say that, but you're not living here in North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess it just depends on where you are. Um, a lot fewer Baptists up here. Yeah, <laughs> um, literally and figuratively. Yeah. <laughs> but for a large extent, it seems that these laws are being kept in place purely by self-interested actors who are like, like we want the wholesaling needs to stay in place because we'll benefit from it. And, and maybe it's a kind of a concentrated benefits to fees cost problem where the electorate doesn't care enough. It doesn't really affect them enough to really, really care about this issue. Um, whereas the wholesalers and, and the big businesses are really benefiting it from it a lot. And so they're going to be able to convince people, um, whether that's the Baptist or whether it's just bureaucrats, um, and be able to kind of push these things through and keep them in place, even if they don't really make any economic or political sense. Mm -hmm. How about the rest of you? Same? Well, for me, probably the thing that I find most problematic about the modern alcohol regime, I'm going to say, uh, regulatory... I like that word, the regime, yeah. Regulatory regime um, has... Regime has such a great ring. Um, <laughs> it's probably things like the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board, uh, which I'm from Pennsylvania, so I'm very familiar with how badly the, the PLCB operates. And the level of corruption, which it like fosters in, in Pennsylvania alcohol, uh, in the Pennsylvania alcohol business, is really tragic. Because you have a, a number of government bureaucrats who are not motivated by like the, the, the invisible hand of the market. They're motivated by a self-interest. There was recently, a, like, I think maybe even just today, the news came down that there's there's going to be a something like a nine million dollar penalty for several suppliers because they were trying to bribe uh, PLC, <laughs> PLCB employees. But the employees took the bribes. <laughs> like, the fact that the, the board exists uh, essentially means that, that there are people that these companies, it's in these companies' interest to try and, and utilize rent-seeking mechanisms to get a better deal and, and to make more profit. So it, it really does, it does not do anything to protect Pennsylvanians from the dangers of alcoholism. Like I love Pennsylvania, but there's a lot of alcoholics there, and PLCB does not like solve that problem. All it does is is really it raises the price of, of alcohol for people who use it responsibly and for people who use it irresponsibly. And, and the people who use it irresponsibly end up spending more of their money on alcohol. It's, it's, it's and that's what I would get rid of. I've brought this up on my show before because it, it it seems. I, I, I haven't been able to put it very well in words yet, but as far as like you've just brought up, these people are paying more for their alcohol. And it's supposedly that with what these, a lot of these regulations are trying to do is you raise the price of alcohol, uh, but, and, and then you're going to see less people purchase it. But even when taxes go up, that's, it doesn't work that way. You actually see some people that tend to spend more than on alcohol because of those higher taxes, and it's not pushing them away from buying it. Uh, but then potentially a lot of these people that are doing it are actually more off on the lower income side. And so as far as morally, are you trying to, I mean, is the state then trying to say we need to take more money away 
from those most in need away from potentially their families or potentially what they're trying to do and just say like, well, because it's a sin tax, we're going to take that money and spend it on something else that may or may not help them. And if, and if the state is getting involved in this, uh, they're promoting a sin. Like, I guess in, I mean, the way they talk about it, they're promoting a sin since it's a syntax. Like, uh, cause in North Carolina, I, I mean, since I, I see it on TV or on Hulu, I guess, uh, they have the, um, lottery ads. Like the state is actively trying to promote you to buy their lottery system while they're banning any other type of lottery out there saying it's evil. But if you do it with the state, somehow it becomes a good and it's not an evil anymore. And so when the government gets involved with like ABC boards and uh, I know in Pennsylvania, Commonwealth Foundation does a tremendous amount of work on this. uh, It it just seems odd that they're in a position where they want to promote more sales because that gives them their job and tax revenue, as they say. But I know in Pennsylvania, it's actually a, a net loss for Pennsylvania to have this board. Uh, but in North Carolina, they actually promote this as a way to get tax revenue out there, uh, even yeah, though taxes would get tax revenue in Pennsylvania too. Yeah, people, are, people believe them, <laughs> although n- nobody really believes them. But there's no way because the unions are so entrenched in Pennsylvania and basically every every other place. Yeah, has state-run liquor stores. There's no, you know, I hope, I pray that privatization will happen in Pennsylvania, but mm-hmm. it's going to take a long time, and it's going to be a very fraught political fight Oh, yeah. You see all the people that are actually benefiting from this system. Uh, and then that's just it. All the people who aren't benefiting, but how much skin in the game do they really care about? Like, so for someone that buys alcohol or a consumer, you're paying so much in tax, so much in taxes. But is that worth your time and effort? That would be more than that to try to take away that system. And that's the problem we see with a lot of these laws and bills that are trying to reform the system is sure the people like there's a lot to be gained if they take these or take these regulations away. But the people that are going to benefit, it's not they don't have the power yet or they just don't benefit as much as the people who stand to lose from these laws. Here's another thing that I think is just incredibly perverse about Pennsylvania's law specifically. Right? Like, if you're wealthy and you have the means, you just drive to Delaware and you buy your fancy wine mm-hmm. at a reasonable price. Or Ohio. Or, or Ohio. Well, well maybe I mean, not New York. You're not going <laughs> to. Well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Ohio. Yeah. There's, I think there's liquor tax in Ohio, too. But, like, I know if most people on the eastern side of the country, not the country, but Pennsylvania, they just drive to Delaware. And they yeah. don't pay sales tax and they don't report it on their, on their taxes at the end of the year because why would they? Um, but the poor, the people who can't afford to drive to Delaware, pay more for alcohol. And it, it's a regressive tax. Sin taxes are, are very, very regressive in practice, and, and uh, I just think that's... Well, the thing, too, like, as a deterrent, you know, yes, there may be some people kind of in a sort of marginal case that, like, maybe the extra money on that alcohol cost will deter them, but the actual, like, alcoholics, the problem drinkers, yeah. like, they are not thinking about how much it's costing them, and, like, those are the people that you would ideally want to keep from accessing alcohol, but, like, they're not. They're just being by both their alcoholism and the state's price gouging. No, but don't worry. They're taking that money then that they're taking away from them to get more involved in alcohol and putting that into a program that they may have never heard about to save them from that. (laughs) 
And I think one of the most dangerous aspects of this is kind of something we haven't really talked about too much yet. Um, is you like we have these you kind of have these seen consequences where uh, we'll see prices go up or we'll see um, inefficiencies or bureaucracies and all these things that we can see. Mm-hmm. Um, but to kind of invoke Bastia, like there's some things that you don't see going on in the background too, um, and especially with beer laws and the franchise laws, three tier system, all that is that you don't necessarily see the entrepreneurship that's not happening. You don't see all the really cool innovations um, that aren't taking place because entrepreneurs or um, investors or whoever is going to be doing these things are too scared or just don't think it's worth it um, to invest in projects that might just get shut down by the government or they might just be too expensive because of regulatory costs or taxes or whatever. And so there may like, alcohol lovers might be missing out on like a lot of really cool things and things that you know might prevent alcoholism in some way i don't know maybe people like a fancier beer so they're willing to spend more on it but drink less of it mm-hmm. no, I, don't know. Um, I don't know if that's true for alcohol yeah but i think i think you might be stretching it there, <laughs> stretching it there. but you know like i do think there's i mean examples of at least craft beer lovers who do end up uh, being harmed by a lot of these kinds of regulations and that's kind of a whole other topic but you, well, that's a, these are certain things that we don't see because they're not they're not obvious and they're not things that we can really point to. Yeah, I mean, and, so, sorry, and it, ahead, oh no, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, for the listener, um, I'm I'm solo in my studio, and then uh, the three guys there are in their own. So it, there there is a weird lag between a couple of us. But uh, as far as um, you brought up that really uh, like great point because I mean at the end of the day, I mean we're talking about. Uh, heavy issue here as far as alcoholism, people are addicted. Like this is something we don't want to promote. That's not uh, what we want to do. And I love the end line that you guys have on the show. Uh, enjoy our podcast responsibly. And that's the track that I take as well. And I think a lot of people in the craft beer and these industries is that this is a product that is, should be enjoyed responsibly and in moderation. Uh, and so beyond that, we don't want to promote anything beyond that. But, uh, I mean, that honestly goes without saying, but two, uh, by hurting like craft beer or craft spirits or craft wine lovers, I, I sort of tend to think it potentially does at the end of the day, because you hear about these articles. Um, I mean, the most recent one, which I take with a grain of salt is, uh, uh, the one that came out that said that millennials are destroying the beer world. And uh, what it was getting at was millennials aren't buying the cheap beer anymore and they're going to more craft spirits or craft wine. And I mean, there is potential to abuse those as well, but if anything, it sort of showcases how this generation that's been deemed the millennials is more apt to want to enjoy rather than consume for the sake of consumption. And because you do see sales in beer has slumped, but the sales in craft beer has gone up, which means that uh, the bigger guys are getting squeezed in the middle, which is why they're making these plays out with these, uh, uh, or, 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 or with buying up some of these craft brewers out there and trying to blend that line, uh, which I had a, um, um, I had uh, someone on the show uh, that talked about how we should sort of get back to microbrewing as the term now instead of craft beer because craft beer that because it's getting blended right now. But I think with the studies that are coming out 
uh, with these things that millennials are destroying everything that's good in the world. Yeah. I, I think it, it does sort of play in with we sort, which we are destroying. I mean, look, look at us, uh, creative destructive or destruction out there. But uh, yeah, I think it's at the end of the day, it's a good thing. We're just finding value in different things that our other generations have not. They sought value elsewhere. They didn't even have the opportunity to think about these value placements that we're using right now in our lifetime. And I think, you know, we are in the middle of, I mean, I fear we're coming towards the tail end of maybe uh, the, the a brewing renaissance in this mm-hmm. country. And like, I am about as close to a like just gung-ho beer lover as anybody. I mean, I just love beer. And it's a really great time to be alive in this country for somebody that really loves beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that renaissance has only been possible because you know, in, in, in the 1980s, wasn't it, John? It was up until the 1980s, craft brewing or microbrewing as we know it was illegal. 1979, yeah. The only yeah. thing Carter did yeah. right. <laughs> Just about. I'd imagine, yeah. Yeah. Aside from all those Habitat for Humanity houses he's building. Now. Yeah, that but, is pretty uh, nice. <laughs> he, you know, until that barrier, and you see the inertia, the cultural, cultural um, practices have, right? Because the, the government suppre- with prohibition suppresses craft brewing, suppresses the brewer's craft, and the only people that come out of prohibition still able to make beer are the big ones. And, and, and you know, now even bigger than they once were, maybe Indes and, and such. But that, the fact that those were the only players still around, that was government's fault. And mm-hmm. that, you know, even the laws that were in place they weren't repealed until 1980, but you didn't see the craft brewing revolution until the 2000s. Yeah. It took like 20 years for the inertia that that government policy had, had, had placed on the culture to vanish and for people to realize, oh, my God, maybe beer can actually taste good. You know, like that, I think we don't, honestly, we don't often enough recognize how deeply policy can impact culture um, when you're prohibiting mm-hmm. things like Oh, yeah. I mean, and looking at that point in history too. I mean, when they or when pro when pro when prohibition finally ended, uh, you see only the big guys that were able to figure out different ways of staying in business, and a lot of them even just made malt extract or near beer. And but the thing was, during that time period, that that was a very big time period of cultural change as far as how people would consume alcohol as well, because near beer was legal, and that was when. Uh, the whole factory line was really revving up. Uh, they actually started doing canning and bottling during Prohibition time period. Because uh, prior to Prohibition, everyone would typically drink beer from barrels. That was how they got it. They would go down to the saloon and buy it that way. No one really bought cans or bottles. So you've got these companies that, or these giants now that were able to use a, or, or get or perfect a new style of transportation, new styles of consumption, perfect that during this time period, invest tons of money into it. And then the moment the gates are lifted, you've got these big guys that already have changed the culture. And now you've got anyone that wants to try to get back in, uh, have no idea about the transportation, no idea about how to brew. Well, there were a lot of people who knew how to brew, but no idea of how to produce it in large scale, no idea how to bottle, no idea how to can. No idea about the relationships of building up with distributors or with retailers. And so, yeah, 
it, it was sort of from the get-go, there was really no way that a small guy could win in that type of uh, culture at that point. We have had, and we'd like to have discussions sometimes about like whether or not, because libertarians love to talk about economies of scale and mm-hmm. the importance of economies of scale. But I personally am, am sort of convic- con- convicted, convinced that at times economies of scale can be the enemy of quality products. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we saw this with absinthe, as, as it became much more popular, people started making it out of poisonous stuff uh, to save on costs, and that eventually led to its being banned. So I, I think that when the government steps in to enable large producers to benefit immensely from econ- economies of scale, mm-hmm. it exacerbates this problem. Yeah. Because that's, um, yeah, that's a good point, because like, had prohibition never happened, uh, we might have a different type of culture where we don't want these like 24 packs of bud or maybe that was a slower creep into uh, how we want to consume. Like we, we, we truly like with opportunity costs, we really truly have no idea or the unseen of what could have happened had this never taken place. I think, and that's actually a hypothetical that I'm very interested in exploring. I think our beer culture here in the, in the U S might be much closer to what, uh, the UK has with lots of very talented, very high quality uh, producers who are not sort of competing against the, the giant factory beer. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Germany, where there were beer laws in place, we talked about this with the Reinheitsgebot episode, mm-hmm. uh, their beer kind of came out almost like the American style of beer, like very light beer, very cheap to produce, consumed in massive quantities. Um, and I think some of that was because of the regulation of beer in, in Germany, which while it was never banned, it was regulated in a way that led to cost savings becoming the most important thing to the companies that were brewing in Germany. Now, the Germans still make great beer because some of that is cultural. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to talk crap about German beer. It's very good. <laughs> but I think British beer is better, and that may just be my, my palate. But uh, the British have a very different alcohol culture than the Germans and the Americans do. And to my knowledge... Uh, it was never regulated as heavily in the United Kingdom as it was here or in Germany, although yeah. I could be wrong about that. I'm not sure on that either. I haven't looked into it. But, I mean, that would be my guess. I would bet. <laughs> I would bet a very small man. amount of money on my <laughs> residual knowledge of English uh, beer law history. Yeah, we, haven't done, we should do an episode on that one. Sure. Oh, that would be really good. I, I know I would definitely be tuning in on that one. Uh, I, I guess um, we're coming to about the end of the show. Um I really like uh, what are I guess what can we look forward to uh, from you guys as far as some shows that you're thinking about there that you're working on and uh, definitely um, any other thing you want to talk about or really want to make sure that we get in before the end of the show. Um, yes, yeah, so like one thing I think we wanted to talk about is like, you know, as we sort of examined a lot of regulations, you know, I think we came into this with like very like oh, all regulations are bad and we should just. Abolish the whole government. Um, <laughs> I'm not, not quite that, but yeah, like, only the whiskey rebellion had been successful. <laughs> but um, you know, I think like one thing that we kind of bumped up against that I thought was interesting was um, sort of like labeling uh, regulations, and that's one where like you know personally I've kind of softened it, which I think is like compatible with free market views. I think ultimately for the market to work, you need informed consumers, and so you need some kind of structure where uh, you know sales products can't mislead consumers. I feel like one of the clearest examples of this was absence. Um, so as we talked about in that episode, 
basically there are two ways you can make absinthe. You, it can be like distilled or I believe cold mixed is the other term. Um, cold mixed res results in like a much like lower quality alcohol. It's not as good. It's really not um, absinthe at all. Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, because like the base liquor use in cold mixing is distilled, you can still label that as distilled absinthe. Um, so yeah, it's the same with bourbon. Like they're very particular. Not very particular, but there are some, some requirements as to what you can call bourbon. And I think to an extent that's a good thing. Now, there are definitely places where that can go overboard, and I think the, uh, the Reinheitsgebot in Germany is a good example. Like, you can only call beer beer if it contains, like, a very, very limited set of ingredients. And that's, you know, that's really limited uh, the uh, diversity of beer yeah. in Germany. Um, as Michael said, it's, you know, it's, it's good quality, but it all kind of tastes the same. <laughs> Um, so I, I think it's it's kind of finding the right balance of like making sure that very you know, specific claims have to be backed up, but not not trying to make a broad term like beer into something very specific as the way the uh, German government's done it. Yeah, I think you know my stance is everything in moderation, even loss. <laughs> like <laughs> I think there is very much a balance to be struck between like the Reinheitsgebote regulation, which exists to protect specific producers and is too strict and a regulation like most countries have with the absence thing, where there's basically no law on what you can and can't call absence. The only place that has a law on absence, whether you can call absence absent or not, is uh, Switzerland. And all the absence in Switzerland is real absence. You can't even sell the crappy cold mix and stuff there. So to some degree, I think there is an argument to be made that you can strike a balance between too much of a law and not quite enough. Again, I think the key there is making sure that consumers have access to the information that they need to make good decisions for themselves mm -hmm. rather than trying to make decisions for them. Yeah, I agree. Well, let me uh, – if, if you're okay with a little bit of a longer show, it really brought to mind a question that I've been trying to flesh out, and I, I would love to get your guys' input on this. Like, um, to challenge what you have just said um, with the question, do – our laws actually promote drinking as opposed to uh, as opposed to tampering it down uh, by what I mean by that is so you've got you've got a consumer base that relies on the government to dic or tell them what's good what's bad what's whiskey what's not what's bad absinthe what's good app or what's absinthe and whatnot so as far as a consumer if I put all my faith into the government to say, this is going to be quality beer, 100%, no matter what, even if it isn't, like we're putting our name behind and we're saying, nope, it's all going to be good. It's all safe to drink. This is what you should do. Um, that, I mean, going into with what we talk about with Germany and America, having more of an industrialized and a more bland type of beer that's more highly consumed, uh, potentially with those types of regulations, does that put our guard down uh, and be more willing to consume whatever as opposed to if there were none of these types of restrictions in place by the government or putting the full faith and credit of the government into this and was more based upon a locality of people that w could verify it or businesses that would verify the quality or the type of beer or liquor that you're drinking, does that sort of put it on to the consumer then to trust local people more 
than the big giants in Bev and Coors and whatnot. But trust the local guy more that they know that's down the road that they're going to be feel better about drinking their beer than they would some beer that's made half the world away or in another state. So do our laws actually promote drinking? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a fair criticism. And I think I, I guess in my previous answer, I was probably kind of falling into a little bit of what uh, GK Chesterton called the, uh, the flying authority. Like I just say like, Oh, someone should uh, regulate what can be labeled as what. And when I say someone, like what I mean is me, mm-hmm. but <laughs> that's not going to be the reality. And you know, when someone's, um, whoever actually, does impose those regulations there's always the possibility that you know oh maybe they're in the pocket of you know some Mm -hmm. producer but i mean i think the problem is you could fall into the same trap with um sort of like private we we definitely uh, have talked about this we have i don't know if it made it into one of our episodes or not i believe it did but um well it will now i mean i think (laughs) (laughs) i think you know regardless of who is providing their feedback on like what's good or what's bad whether it's the government or, um, you know, some like independent review service or, or even sort of crowdsource review like Yelp, um, there's always the risk of like, wh- what are these person? what is this person's biases? Like who's, mm-hmm. who's paying them? Um, and I think that's why like ultimately I don't think government should do anything beyond labeling. And like that is, like that's to make the maximum comfort. Like I'm certainly not saying like, oh, you can't sell this if it doesn't meet the standard. It's just saying, like, oh, if it doesn't meet the standard, like, maybe you should say it doesn't. Yeah, I think oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe you shouldn't be able to call it bourbon, but you should still be able to sell it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I see, like, two further problems with labeling regulations on the government side. Like, one, I don't think most people actually know what the regulations say about it. Yeah. So they just kind mm-hmm. of trust the government is not going to let bad stuff in it or there's going to be some sort of uh, regulations on this stuff. But I don't think, I mean, maybe, I don't know if bourbon's a good example, but I think most people, maybe most people that drink bourbon, unless they're like really hardcore lovers of bourbon, don't know all the regulations on it and don't necessarily care as much. They just know that it says bourbon. And so they're kind of trusting that the, the regulations that the government say actually make bourbon good. Maybe like charred oak barrels don't actually do anything. I mean, I know they, they do. do. Yeah. They do. <laughs> they're, they're crucial to the <laughs> But no, but there's a chance that like there's regulations out there that like don't really increase the quality of, of different goods. And I think the other, the second problem that can go along with that is like, Passing regulations is difficult, and changing regulations is also very difficult. Yeah, and so if there's if there's science out there, evidence out there that this regulation, the way it's written, or the labeling regulation, or whatever kind of safety regulations is written in its current state is not actually in accordance with modern science, it's very, very difficult to get that changed in a, in a reasonable way, in a reasonably quickly way. Whereas I think if you had like more of a private... Um, certification board or just kind of uh, the market working through those kind of things on its own, I think things would be much more quick, which much more quick and uh, certification boards or breweries or distillers would be much uh, more willing to change their standards and things uh, that, you know, they might actually become more regulated. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if it's privatized, it's going to be much quicker and much better. Yeah. Uh, one thing I think, one advantage that I think arises out of great your idea and you've talked about this before, but the idea of private certification boards that like you can put your stamp on this and say, this is certified bourbon by the Bourbon Council of America. The advantage of that is that you can have competing certification boards. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the disadvantage that the government has is that 
often it, it's, a, it's a fiat. The government is saying, we're the ones that can decide what bourbon is. And you can't call it bourbon if it doesn't bear our stamp. Um, whereas you could have a, com a competitive environment and a system with private certification. That's not to suggest that that wouldn't con confuse the consumer, though. I, I think, you know, it's, we talk about this with, like, a organic food or anything, but I think people could be easily confused by, oh, well, how do I know which certification board is best? How do I know, you know, whether that these people are being paid off by this specific manufacturer or not? And it's very hard to find that information um, because it's not going to be made public. <laughs> the, the, the advantage of the government is that you can, if you want to, because they have to publish these laws, you have you can see how they make their decisions about what is and isn't urban and how that law was made and who it applies to. And uh, it's a little bit more public, but the, the truth is people don't. But you might need a law degree to actually read it. You may, <laughs> yeah, to understand it, yeah. And people don't, people don't really care. And I think you're right, Greg, that for most people, it's they're just going to accept what the government says is safe. And it, it, sometimes it's not going to be safe. <laughs> and I don't know that it's necessarily going to increase the amount that people drink, but it probably does, it has systematic issues. Although I think that, you know, there would be issues with the private certification system as well. Yeah. Um, well, let's just say if we're if we're going to say that a hundred percent or has to work a hundred percent of the time all the time, well, our system only works sixty percent of the time all the time. So it's it's trying to figure out the best systems out there, and uh, I think that's why I yeah. love these types of conversations with people like you guys, is because we're trying to flesh out which one could be better, not holding one to this arbitrary standard of whether, well, if it's not 100, then let's just stick with our system we got right now because it's close enough. So, but yeah, that's, I think that would actually be a really good show potentially in the future is just to have one, that be the only subject and just have a conversation on that is do yeah. laws promote alcohol use? But <laughs> Some certainly do. I, I yeah. To me, it's pretty clear that the Liquor Control Board, if you're benefiting from the sale, the government's benefiting from the sale of alcohol, just like they benefit from the sale of lottery tickets, mm -hmm. they're going to push that. You know, they're going to advertise that. And I and I think the distribution system in Pennsylvania is one example of like that actually does, because it's really hard to go to Pennsylvania and just buy a six pack. Really, oh, yeah, until yeah. recently, you have to buy you have to buy like twenty of beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you want to buy beer, you got to buy a case of that. And so, if their yeah. argument is that they want distributors to like reduce the consumption, but they're forcing you to buy a crap ton of beer, like <laughs> it's not <laughs> this is not going to work. So it's pretty perverse. All right. Well, I guess that's going to be about the end of the show. But um, guys, uh, thank you so much uh, for doing this show with me. I've tremendously enjoyed this. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you, Greg. And how can the listener find out or listen to your show? Where can it be found at? Uh, how can they find out more about what you guys are working on uh, individually and on the show? Yeah, so um, our podcast is hosted on Podbean, working on getting it on iTunes and Stitcher and everything that they sort of disseminate to. Wherever fine podcasts are sold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you can also follow us on Twitter at Whiskey Rebcast um, or uh, on Facebook as uh, the Whiskey Rebels Podcast, and that's uh, Whiskey with an E-Y, uh, which is the American and Irish spelling. I really so. Um so individually, you can follow me at Josh Evans 116 I tweet about uh, alcohol and tech policy. I have a Twitter, but 
I don't tweet about anything interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and you can follow me at jrnecon16. I'll probably be tweeting about alcohol and regulations. And econ. And then the name. <laughs> All right, and then I guess I would love to give you guys the send-off of the show with your uh, slogan at the end. Oh, thank you for the honor. Um, well, thank you for listening. This has been uh, Frida Brew and the Whiskey Rebels. Enjoy our podcast responsibly. <laughs>